This morning I've split the sermon into two halves. This first half will be a very short half in order to get us to the act of remembrance at about 11 o'clock. What connection is there between a wonderful baptism and an act of remembrance for those who have died in war recently but also over the centuries and still? Well, for me, the baptism is a sign of hope that in Christ life goes on, that there is hope for a world no matter how awful human beings are and can be in that world. Did you notice in that psalm that we just read and prayed together how it is rejoicing in the presence of God, God in the midst of the community, in the midst of the city, in the midst of society, in the midst of the world? Did you notice how its hope was that if God is recognised in the centre of all things, in the midst, that all the pain, the suffering and the evil of war can come to an end. <coughs> the lesson of human history is that we've not recognised God in the midst well enough for that to happen forevermore. Wars keep breaking out. But did you also notice the language of the psalm? It's of a violent God. It is of God breaking things. God destroying things. And if you imagine that your God is simply stronger than anyone else, you're still playing the war game. If you want to know how God creates order out of chaos, peace out of war, good out of evil, we need to look at the story of Jesus in the New Testament. And that we will come to after our act of remembrance. I've been conscious quite a lot over the last few weeks that how we deal with death, and Peter Bates addressed the issue of death in his sermon brilliantly last week, how we deal with death is to concentrate very often these days on celebration, on thanksgiving, and sometimes to do a quick bypass to the ugliness and the nastiness and the pain and the grief and the doubt. Central to what we do today is simply to remember any judgments we make about it come later. The first task is to remember those who died, whoever they were, for whatever reason they died, just to remember. So this is part two. I want to start in a slightly different place. Many of you here 
will either yourselves have been touched by the horrors of war or terrorism or violence in one way or another or you will have people in your families or circle of friends who have I'm nearly 65 and I've not fought in a war but members of our families have one of the things that I have to recognise about myself is that I grew up as a teenager in the 1960s when nuclear war was a real and present threat and I was an idealistic pacifist and a lot of me still is that means that despite members of my family and Marion's family having been in the forces I still find that quite uncomfortable though I have come to respect them and one job I know I can't do as a minister is to be a military chaplain it would take up so much energy living in that amount of compromise that I would not be effective so one of the things I'm proudest of is that our churches and the Methodist Church in particular has a wonderful set of military chaplains some of them are my former students who I helped train for ministry I'm immensely proud of them because I know that they can do a job with integrity that I can't I just won't be able to manage it but with integrity they go into one of these situations they go one of my students is now the lead chaplain with the Marines who was out in Afghanistan and Iraq how do you create an expression of the church with people who are living those things how do you live back in this country in a base with a chapel in it with families <coughs> which might be off to Iraq or Afghanistan when they were the trouble spots or their modern equivalents how do you minister in those situations if nothing else on a day like this I think we need to pay tribute to those who serve in ways that we can hardly imagine stretch to the limit and are able to hold Christian integrity while in the middle of mess and compromise because there's nothing wholly good or wholly bad even in war it's a mess and there are compromises for everyone who gets drawn into it. And our Christian faith and hope is that our God is a God who creates something out of nothing, who creates order out of chaos, who creates peace out of war, who creates life out of death. A God who somehow 
can cope with mess and anguish and grief and pain and disaster and can somehow absorb that and help to begin a process that starts to bring good out of even the most awful. And God's way of doing that, as I hinted on, is the psalmist got hold of half of it, but the psalmist was human and was still understanding God through the limits of the psalmist's own mind and times, just like we understand and interpret God through the limits of our minds and times. And the psalmist was still thinking of God with the model of a warlord. Simply our God's bigger than your God's. Our God's bigger than your human kings. Don't try bullying me, because our God will bully you instead. Well, tell our dad, our dad God, and he will sort you out. And that basic childish human reaction is still deep within us, if we're honest. But what does the story of Jesus tell us? Jesus doesn't change human history and change the world by zapping people. He doesn't do it by overpowering them, by destroying things. The story of Jesus on the cross is of someone who is able to take all the evil that can be thrown at him and live through it. Now one thing that Jesus isn't is soppy. It's not that Jesus is a whip who simply lets anybody do what they like to him. You can't read the gospel. I know there's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But Jesus' mildness and gentility is not that of a wimp, of an ineffective, soppy person. There's a steel in him. There's a strength in him. But not a strength which preserves himself by zapping others. Jesus takes all the evil, and even in his case was personal evil, it was the evil of the systems he lived in, a time of occupation by military forces, of pressure on politicians and religious leaders to make people conform. He's able to live in that sort of setting, settings that still exist in our world, dynamics that still exist. He was able to take that and let it all happen to him, absorb it all, trusting in God, and that level of trusting God is what enabled God to raise him to life. It's very hard to interpret the story of Jesus as to what is in his divine consciousness and his human consciousness. But I personally find it very hard to believe that when Jesus yelled out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't 
feel that and didn't believe that. He felt abandoned by God and yet still trusted God enough to go ahead. He didn't know for certain that he was going to be raised. He had hope and faith that if he was obedient, he would be raised to new life because he believed in a God revealed in the Bible for him, the Hebrew Scriptures, a God who creates things out of nothing, creates life out of death, creates peace out of war, creates something out of nothing. And out of that comes new life of the resurrection. Out of that comes hope. And the model that Jesus demonstrates is the model that he sets out for all who choose to follow him. To the best of our ability, we're meant to walk the same way. And that model is set out in the Beatitudes that we heard read just a moment ago. Again, the Beatitudes are not describing wimps. Nihilists describing people who go around zapping things. But did you notice what they were saying? Let's just pick out one as an example of them all. One that's relevant to today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, sometimes we misunderstand the Beatitudes because we see them as saying, Things might be bad now, but don't worry, they'll continue to be bad now, but in heaven everything will be better. That's only part of the story. Because what the Beatitudes say, we often miss, is that while you're trying to make peace, or to use the others, while you're being poor in spirit, while you're mourning, while you're being meek, while you're hungering and thirsting for things to be right in the world, while you're making peace, while you're doing all those things, you're blessed while you're doing them. You are blessed now, in the midst of those things, God is close to you and you are close to God while you're seeking to make peace and you're hungry and thirsting to put things right in the world. That's when you're closest to God. And by the way, things will be okay in the future as well. That's what the Beatitudes are saying. Because they're describing somebody who is Jesus-like. Who by hungering and thirsting to put things right in the world and to make peace, becomes a channel through which human beings and human society begins to be transformed. And that is what remembering is all about. We remember those who've lost their lives and given their lives in war. 
And above all today, we gather round our Lord's table, where he invited us to take him into his life, so that we could be taken into his life, and where we could enter his dynamic of taking up the cross and allowing ourselves to be the body of Christ through which God changes the world. What a wonderful but scary calling that is. Blessed 